The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of Audlin Brown, BD Developments, Stem Cell Technologies, and listeners like you. We live in a food environment that encourages people to eat as much as possible, says Dr. Marion Nessel. Fighting those overwhelming messages and mustering up resistance is next to impossible. The history of the consume more movement, Nessel says, came about as a remedy to diseases of deficiency. But the message was so successful that Healthline now estimates 42% of Americans are obese and two-thirds are overweight. In her book, Food Politics, Dr. Nessel demonstrates the impact of the $900 billion-plus industry and its ability to influence our health. Dr. Nessel says our over-efficient food industry must do everything it can to persuade people to eat more, more food, more often, and in larger portions, no matter what it does to waistlines or well-being. I invited Dr. Marion Nessel, whom Forbes once called the number two most powerful foodie in the world, to join me for a conversation that matters about food. Food. It's a powerful part of our lives, isn't it? It certainly is. We love to eat. Well, I love to eat. Well, we have to eat. Like we have I, to I mean, eat. That, that's part of the problem. Mm. It, it, it's a biological necessity. We have yeah. to consume calories. Mm. Must. But, but what we eat, oh my gosh, it's, it, it has no relationship to the organic nature of what food initially was. What happened? Um, money got involved. You know, food companies discovered that if they made what are now called ultra-processed foods, they could sell them at reasonable prices. People loved them, adored them. Some people say they're addictive. I don't like to use the word, but they're irresistibly delicious. You've got a bag of chips or cookies in front of you, you can't stop eating them. And they're enormously profitable for food companies. Well, the thing about processed foods that I think about, and I don't know if my theory is right, I go, well, when the Earl of Sandwich said, I'm gonna slice bread and make a, a sandwich, he went, okay, here's a way of packaging up mm -hmm. food. Mm -hmm. And it's this ability to package and preserve somehow mm -hmm. so that we can have it at, at a distant time rather than the need to have it right now with fresh food, uh, spawned this ability to overproduce. Well, we love convenience. Everybody does. It's just wonderful to be able to have a pantry full of foods that you can call on anytime and not have to go out and hunt and gather. Uh, you know, not having to hunt and gather is very helpful, a little difficult for people who live in cities. But the real issue behind all of this is that food is enormously overproduced in most countries, except all but the poorest countries. Mm -hmm. In the United States, we have about 4,000 calories available every day for every man, woman, and little tiny baby. That's twice what people need. So if you're a food company working in that kind of environment, you've got to work hard to sell those calories. It's really competitive. And your choice is... You can charge more for the calories that you're producing. You can get people to eat yours instead of somebody else's. 
or you can get people to eat more in general. Mm. And that's what they did. In order to, to, when all of this happened, and we can trace it to the early 1980s, when the food system really changed. Um, why, why, what happened at that point? Capitalism. <laughs> well, that um, is the system yeah, we live in. That's yeah. the system we live in, but it changed in, in the early 1980s. It used to be that corporations, not only food corporations, but all food corp but all corporations had an enormous amount of social responsibility to the workers, to the people, to the communities that they were in. You know, if you were a little old lady, you bought blue chip stocks. When was the last time you ever heard about a blue chip stock? In the, you know, the Milton Friedman in the 1970s started saying the only responsibility, social responsibility that a corporation has is profits. Yes. And then Jack Welsh, who was the head of General Electric in 1981, made a speech in which he said, that's what corporations should be doing. Shareholder value is the most important thing. We want higher returns on investment right now. And that was when all the, all the workers got fired, the cost cutting started, and companies had to figure out how in an investment environment in which profits were no longer enough. Mm -hmm. Now you had to grow your profits and report growth every, every 90 days. Well, every co food company can't grow. There's already twice as much food around as anybody needs. They can't all grow. What they could do was find ways to sell food. So they made bigger portions. Mm -hmm. And I'm fond of saying that if I had one, one concept to communicate, it would be that larger portions have more calories. I can't even say it with a straight face because yeah. it seems so obvious, but it's not. It's not, a, it's not intuitively obvious at all. People mm. eat what's in front of them, and everybody thinks that if it's a, in a bag, it's got 100 calories. Right. If it's a bigger bag, it's going to have a lot more than that. So they made bigger portions. Yes. They put food in places where food never used to be before. My favorite example is libraries. Right. I mean, when I went to New York University and started there as a faculty member, there were signs all over the library. You bring food in here and you're going to be yeah. expelled. Right. Now there's two cafes in the library. Right. You, know, you go to a clothing store, there never used to be food in clothing store. You never could bring a drink into a bookstore. Now every bookstore has a cafe. You go into schools, elementary, secondary, universities, there's food everywhere. Food absolutely everywhere, all the time, all the time. And it turns out we humans, if there's food in front of us, we eat it. If there's food in front of us in large portions, we eat more. The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of Audlin Brown, BD Developments, Stem Cell Technologies, and listeners like you. Is that just an autonomic response to, oh, there's calories and I can, and I can have them, mm -hmm. I'm going to take them, for mm -hmm. fear that if I don't, I might starve? Well, I don't know. I think this is hardwired in mm. from, you know, it used to be really hard to get food. You had to hunt it or gather it. Um, now it's available in ways that it never was before. But what changed in the early 1980s was the enormous pressure to buy more food mm -hmm. at all times. And between 1980 and 2000 in the United States, there was an average weight gain of around 20 pounds. Uh, you know, it's still going up. It's not going up the way it used to. 
But you see this among children particularly. When I was a kid and when my children were kids, mm -hmm. you never saw overweight. You know, I mean, there would be one f fat kid who was horribly treated. Yes. You know, and we could all squirm about that kind of thing. But the now you look at class pictures of of kids 30 or 40 years ago, they look like they were starving. Right. All these kids now have and now the full kids, round faces. Full round faces and full round waistlines. Um, well, and thighs and knees and calves and ankles. You see it all the way down All the body. way down. And type 2 diabetes and, you know, all these other things. Type 2 diabetes used to be a, a, a disease only of adults. Yeah. And now it's an enormous worry among, among children. And this happened without anybody planning it. Mm -hmm. You know, it just happened as a result of... Uh, the need to produce products that people would buy and eat. So if you take a look at the food guide now, it's changed dramatically over mm. the last 40 years as well. Mm. Isn't that supposed to be the gatekeeper of uh, the guide that tells us how to eat healthy? How did that guide change? Well, I actually think the Canadian food guide is pretty good. I like it. I like Well, I like the idea that it talks about cooking, yes. enjoying your food. I mean, those are wonderful concepts. It even says, you know, go easy on ultra-processed food. That's very modern. So I, li I like those parts of it. The, um, the American guidelines need to work on them. Well, they're under, they're under review now. But, but I, what nobody... influenced that change uh, on the food guide? Was it the food industry that was putting pressure? Well, I don't on... think the food guide has changed in the United States. Okay. In the, in 1980, the dietary guidelines said eat less sugar, salt, and fat. They still say that. Okay. They said eat more fruits and vegetables. They still say that. Uh, you know, but are people paying attention no, to it then? No, of course not. I, Nobody uh, pays any attention to God dietary guidelines. <laughs> you know, I mean, public education requires much, much more than dietary guidelines. And I, I can't speak for the Canadian ones, but the United States ones are 150 pages. Wow. Um, you know, who's going to read that? Well, uh, maybe you. Well, I, yeah. yeah. I don't enjoy reading it very much, but there it is. So I'm a huge tennis fan, and in anticipation of our uh, conversation today, I started to pay attention to the number of food ads that were in all the commercial breaks. Mm -hmm. And I re remember going to the U.S. Open and going, okay, I'm at a sporting event where we have elite athletes, but I want to go get some food. Well, it's oh, all dear. sodas, oh, hot dear. dogs, <laughs> chips, and everything like that. And I thought, there's a disconnect here. But then I started mm. to pay attention to the ads. And every single one of them were pizza, fast mm. food this, mm. processed food this, and that. Mm. How powerful is the sector in its ability to be able to just inundate viewers with one food, processed food, after message another. after another. Well, it isn't only that. It's also social media. Yes. Which is where most of the advertising budget, again, I can only speak for what's happening in the States. Yeah. But the evidence that I've seen suggests that most of the advertising for food companies is on social media now. You know, there was just an article in um, the Washington Post that dietitians are being paid by 
food companies to market their products on TikTok and somehow omitting to mention that they were paid to do that. Mm. So what do we do? Uh, how do we turn that off? And then how do we make better food choices? Well, that puts a lot of burden on individuals. I mean, there yeah. are two ways to approach this. One is that you educate people to avoid the foods that are probably that are very high in calories and aren't going to make them healthier. I think everybody knows what a healthy diet is. In fact, a healthy diet is so simple that the journalist Michael Pollan can do it in seven words. Eat food, not too much, mostly plants. Right. And you know, that really takes care of it. Uh, and there are lots and lots and lots of ways to eat healthfully, but it means not eating all day long. It means not snacking all day long. It means eating smaller portions. It means paying attention to what you eat in ways that most people don't want to bother doing. I don't like doing it. I love, you know, the food is so much pleasure. And it's a pleasure that you can have several times a day. <laughs> there aren't that many pleasures in life that are under your control and repeatable. The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of Audlin Brown, BD Development, Stem Cell Technologies, and listeners like you. Well, I was once told uh, the only other biological thing that you do more often than eat is breathe. And I think that that's probably right. I've been well, trying to figure my way through it. But you I don't think get it's the right. same pleasure out of breathing because you don't even notice it. But, I know. But food is an enormous source of pleasure, yeah. just enormous. And the, um, And so when you're getting bombarded with all these messages, from food companies, which we think we don't pay any attention to. Yeah. But again, a lot of this happens because of the way hum the human brain works. A lot of this happens at a subconscious level. So we're not even aware that we're seeing these things. Mm -hmm. It's only when you decided that you were going to pay attention that you even noticed this. You know, otherwise you you don't even notice. It's just sort of there. And then somehow that message gets implanted and then you go and see the food and you think, yum. Oh, yeah. Yum. yum. And it, just a little bit will be okay. But then one bite begets the next. Well, yeah. Pleasure. <laughs> you know? So I know you said you can reduce it down to seven words, but you're also turning it into a book. So oh, what yeah. are you focusing on mm -hmm. in your upcoming book about what to eat? Yeah, I'm doing a new edition of my book, What to Eat, which came out in 2006. And it's a project that I greatly underestimated. I didn't realize how much things had changed because I wasn't paying attention to what was going on. What I did in that book was to use supermarkets as an organizing device. Okay. And I went around the supermarket from aisle to section to aisle to section and talked about all the food issues mm -hmm. that emerged from the choices in that aisle. And I just had no idea how much the whole thing had changed. Um, the publisher said, you have to do at least a 40% revision of the book. This is going mm. to be a 90% revision of the book. It's a whole new book. Well, uh, what was one of the, you know, one or two things that really caught you a little bit off guard? The drinks. Oh, really? Oh my goodness, the drinks. 20 years ago, 
it was Coke and Pepsi and practically nothing else. Mm -hmm. Now it's fizzy waters, it's fruit flavored waters, it's alcohol waters, it's CBD waters, mm -hmm. it's anything that you can put into a water. Miles and miles and miles of shelves of waters in supermarkets, phenomenally um, profitable for the companies that make them because the water comes out of a public water supply and what gets added to it isn't that expensive. Um, you can't walk through a supermarket without coming up against walls of waters of one kind or another. So they're probably, they're healthier than Coke and Pepsi. They don't have as much sugar. Mm -hmm. um, and I just find them astounding. Whatever so, happened to tap water? Well, it's still in the tap. <laughs> um, so with these waters, are they using corn syrup as a so, sweetener as well? Because so, is that not also one of the challenges that we face in the, our ability as humans to digest that corn syrup. It's, we, well, we, we're challenged by it. Yeah, I don't really see it, any physiological difference between corn syrup and sugar. Okay. Because table sugar is glucose and fructose stuck together, yeah. but it separates very quickly mm -hmm. um, in the mouth and in the intestine. And the and corn syrup is glucose and fructose separated. It's got a little more glucose in, it, a little more fructose in it, but basically they're all sugars. Oh, okay. They're all sugars. They're sweet. They're sugars. The difference, the main difference between corn sweeteners and sugar that I can find is they're represented by two completely different lobbying groups. Mm -hmm. One lobbying group represents the producers of cane and beet sugar, and the other lobbying group represents the producers of corn sweeteners. But they're both out there pushing a product. They're that... both out there. It used to be that corn syrup was much cheaper than sucrose, the sugar mm -hmm. that, um, table sugar. And in the 1980s, the soft drink companies dropped sucrose and picked up corn syrup because it was much, much cheaper. But now that mm -hmm. we're growing corn for ethanol as a fuel for cars, the prices are quite similar. Right. <laughs> and don't get me started on that one. The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of Audlin Brown, BD Developments, Stem Cell Technologies, and listeners like you. Then we have a, just a plethora of processed foods. Mm. How much do we have to be wary of the consumption of those? Well, this is a very, the business with processed foods is very, very interesting to me because in 2009, a Brazilian public health professor named Carlos Monteiro um, invented a categorization, a, a way to categorize foods mm -hmm. that divided foods into four categories, of which one was what he called ultra processed foods. The other categories are various degrees of processing, but you don't have to worry about those. Those are food, mm -hmm. minimally processed, processed food, um, processed culinary ingredients, sugar, salt, fat, and processed foods, canned, frozen, chopped, whatever. Those are fine. They're foods. Right. 
But the category of ultra-processed foods, um, he defined as foods that are industrially produced don't look anything like the foods from which they were derived and in fact were designed to replace the foods from which they were derived. Mm -hmm. um, they are filled with food additives of one kind or another. Mm -hmm. They often have a lot of sugar, salt, and fat in them, but that's not the defining characteristic. The defining characteristic is the degree of processing. Mm. And the, the way that I define the operating definition for ultra-processed foods is you can't make them in your home kitchen or you can't make them easily in your home kitchen. If you can make it in your home kitchen, it's not ultra-processed uh -huh. because you don't have the, if it is ultra-processed, it's got made with machinery that you don't have with ingredients that are industrially produced and you don't have them. Uh -huh. um, and the importance of that definition was that once this category was defined, it could be studied. And researchers began to look at what happens to people who eat a lot of ultra-processed foods if their diet is made up of a great deal of ultra-processed foods. And they quickly found out that ultra-processed foods were correlated, associated with obesity, type 2 diabetes, heart disease, cancers, poor outcome for COVID-19, overall mortality, everything is bad for you pretty much. Um, and there's now a phenomenal amount of research that's been done. And so the scientists all say, but that's correlational research. Mm -hmm. Association is not causation. But with ultra-processed foods, there's a fabulously controlled clinical trial that was done at the National Institutes of Health mm -hmm. by Kevin Hall and his colleagues that compared the processed to ultra-processed foods, the diets. And these diets were matched for protein, fat, carbohydrate, vitamins and minerals and fiber. They were matched in palatability. The people who were tasting them couldn't tell the difference. And the subjects in this study were locked up in a metabolic ward so they couldn't cheat. And everything they ate and drank was measured. Um, everything they did was measured. And there was no cheating. Nobody could sneak them food at night. They couldn't hide food. They could eat as much as they wanted of whatever diet they were given. And Kevin Hall, who I've heard speak about this many times, said he never thought that processing would make the slightest bit of difference. And that was why he was testing it. And he was floored by the results because the results showed that when these people locked up, eating as much as they wanted, were given the ultra-processed diet, they ate an average of 500 calories a day more than when they were eating the processed diet. On the ultra-processed diet, they gained weight. On the, pro on the just generally processed diet, they lost weight. Hmm. He was floored, and now he's devoting the rest of his research career trying to find out why this happened. Would it matter if the ingredients were came from organic sources? I don't think so. Well, because the, yeah, you right. see advertising, that, mm. but it's organic. Oh yeah, well, organic is a production value. Yeah, it's the way it has to do with the way the foods were produced. Doesn't have anything to do with their. Doesn't have much to do with their nutritional value or anything else. The flavor. It tastes better, I think, but... So what part of the grocery store do you shop in? 
Well, I shop in the periphery, you know, or what used to be the periphery. I'm, I buy real food. Fruits, I don't buy, vegetables. Yeah, I don't mm. buy a lot. Of, I don't buy a lot of highly processed food. I buy yeah. some. I like junk food just like everybody else. And protein? What do you do for protein? I don't even think about it. It's what a, do you mean? It's a non-issue. If you eat a generally varied diet and don't have a lot of food restrictions, you're going to get all the protein you need. Um, mm -hmm. We only need 10 to 15 percent of the calories from protein, and it's pretty easy to get. I don't give it a thought. Hmm. Well, do you hold out much hope for us as consumers <laughs> <laughs> in fighting the onslaught of this overwhelming message to eat more and well, more often? I we're not doing a very good job with it, but I think, I think the I think the ultra processed concept is going to have a very powerful impact. Mm -hmm. I talk about it a lot, uh, and the uh, people get it right away. Mm -hmm. And then once you know what it is, and once you know how to recognize foods, and you start reading ingredient lists and taking a look at that kind of thing, it's pretty easy to go easy on those foods or not to buy them and to realize that these foods were designed to get you to love them and eat more of them. Right. That's their purpose. They were designed to be addictive, in quotation marks. But by being conscious about what we're consuming, you say that there, we have the ability to take control of our diet. Oh, if you're a strong person. Like you. It's nice if you have a lot of friends who eat the way you do. Mm -hmm. Choose your friends carefully, choose your family carefully. I think it's very difficult. Um, you know, I mean, by this time, I happen to like fruits and vegetables. I happen to prefer salads. Um, but when I'm asked what my favorite food is, it's ice cream. But I try not to eat ultra-processed ice cream. I try to eat homemade ice cream. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you for your time today. Thank you for listening, and please visit conversationsthatmatter.ca and become a subscriber. And thank you to Audlin Brown, BD Developments, and Stem Cell Technologies for their support.